Welcome, podcast listeners, to the Jonathan Vorters episode of Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. Today's episode manages to toe a line between enlightened discourse from one of the deepest minds in the pro cycling world and utter nonsense from my good self. Now, he might know all about American Western modernism, but just how does JV's extensive art knowledge apply to a quiz partially about John Denver, but more so about the city of Denver in Colorado? Let's find out. Hello, and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevenson unplugged by As the head honcho of one of the most creative cycling teams on the planet in EF Education Nippo, Jonathan Vorters didn't get to where he is today by towing the line and doing things the old-fashioned way. Famous for speaking his mind, he's not afraid to ruffle a few feathers, which is not surprising for a man who managed to get into an argument with the UCI about ducks. Pun intended. Check it out. I've actually I just got that joke now. <laughs> JV, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. This is the fir- first ever podcast we've started 10 minutes early. So right. so fair play to you, mate. Um, that's that's a very, very good start indeed. Hang <laughs> on. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before we start, start, let me, let me, I, I just need to go get a drink. So just go for it. Me. Yeah, yeah, go for it, mate. Yeah. Since I'm 10 minutes early. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll just, I'll just riff. Um, um, well, I, I tell you, I quite like this. It's the first person, it's the earliest podcast we've we've ever kind of started, and but our guest has left within 25 seconds. I don't know if that augurs well, so I'm just going to freestyle um, and tell you what we've got coming up. It's it's Jonathan Volters um, from Denver in Colorado, and he happens to be the big boss of EF Education Nippo, as they know. Um, and it's just looking back through pro cycling stats, and we did cross swords or cross wheels. Um, back in the 1990s as professional cyclists. But yeah, we've got lots of stuff coming up. We've got chat. We've got a, a quiz, but I hope he's not listening. Don't tell him too much about the quiz. And we've got guest that snack as well. And, um, and I'm really excited about any, any new jingles that we might insert as well. But um, I've got a drink and it's a, it's a glass of water and it's, it's held within a beaker that I got from Cornwall two years ago at Queens of the Stone Age gig. If anybody's heard of the Eden Project, it's down in Cornwall near near to uh, St. Austell. And it's basically like these biodomes that were made in the kind of mid-1990s. So it's like, a, it's like an enormous garden centre that you can have gigs in as well. So yeah, there you go. That's the history of my, of my cup. And I, I got it, I had to pay 50p for it, but then I took it back and got it filled with cider, and it's got it's Korev Cornish cider. There are other ciders are available. Um, yeah, so that's that's my cup. I'm running out of things to say. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. He's back. He's back. Oh, brilliant stuff. What, uh, what's your before we, we go on any further? What have you got to drink? Uh, well, I got a <clears throat> a glass of a glass a bottle of kombucha. Oh, um, right. Yeah. What what is I don't honestly I don't know what kombucha is what, what is it? Well, I think it, I think it's some sort of advanced meaning for like somebody blew their nose in your drink. Um, <laughs> but, um it's supposedly a, like a probiotic. Um, it's, it's like a tea, but it's a probiotic fermented tea, so it's supposed to be good for your stomach. And it's 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 all the rage here in the United States. Good stuff, mate. Well, uh, yeah. you enjoy. I've just got a 
I've just described it actually, filling the the dead air while you went out to get a drink. And again, another, again, the first ever person who was early and the first ever person who's left the podcast to get a drink and forcing me to fill the airtime. Um, so it's been quite an interesting start when you listen back to the pod, mate. I mean, it's riveting stuff. It really is. Um, uh, so secondly, could you describe for our listeners, please, Jonathan, um, where you are in the world and what you can see immediately around you in the, in the room that you're in, just so we can get a real nice sense of where you are and the kind of context of the conversation? Oh, well, um, I am in Denver, Colorado. Um, I live in sort of an old leafy neighborhood in Denver, Colorado. Um, what I'm looking at is my living room and um, it, it just snowed last night. So um, I'm, uh, I just built a fire before we got on the air. So there's a, a little fire going and then, um, <clears throat> you know, for, I don't know, how to, yeah, I suppose this isn't really a, a well-known thing, but I'm, I'm an, uh, an avid art collector of, um, you know, sort of American Western modernism from the 1920s or thereabouts. Um, and so I have a living room full of, of um, American Western modernism, mainly from an art colony of, of German and Austrian artists that settled in uh, Taos, New Mexico. And, okay and painted native Americans. So I have a lot of paintings, um, in my living room and a fire and a nice, uh, nice quiet snowy day outside. Oh, that's a, a very good description of where you are that I've kind of, it's not, it's really nicely set the scene. I think the the listeners will now be kind of, I think when you know where somebody is, uh, cause podcasts can be quite detached. You're just like, where, where is this person? But once you've set the scene, you're kind of there, aren't you? But that's really yeah. interesting about you, uh, collecting art, Jonathan. I didn't know that. I know you're a big, fan of wine and stuff but recently um i just wanted to touch on that art point since lockdown i mean i've always been into collecting Amer- uh, american comic books since i was i don't know 12 13 I, I, I kind of amassed a really big collection but since lockdown so the start of last year i basically sold it all at an american auction and started buying art so, yeah so just so like but across the board so i, I love keith herring i love andy warhol and stuff mm. Um, and a, a lot of some young American painters that I've bought stuff off this year, uh, just up and coming. Um, so, but I've got really, really into it. And I, do you know what? It's, I know this sounds so cheesy, but it's really, I just love it. I, I feel like a kid that's right. found something brand new and it's this brand new voyage of discovery. So yeah, I, I get it. Art is actually become really important to me. Well, that's great to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 uh, I don't know why, you know, I, I grew up with it because my great, great aunt, um, was a professional artist actually in the, in the same era of the artists that I collect. Yeah. And, you know, in my parents' home, the, her pieces were, you know, sort of everywhere. Right. So I, I, I grew up just looking at this, um, sort of turn of the 19th to 20th century, um, impressionism. Um, that was painted by my great aunt, um, and you know she was educated in France um, at the at the Col de Be- at the at Col de Beaux Arts, and then later at the Chicago Art Institute. Yeah, and um, so I just grew up with this stuff, and and I don't know, you know, the, these things from your childhood sort of permeate the rest of your life, I guess, you know, in, in that it was just osmotically I had sort of absorbed what was around in my parents' house, and and I just grew up with 
some sort of sense of aesthetic as a result of that. So yeah. art's always been a really important thing to me. It, it, it is funny, isn't it? it uh, and I know that there's a, there's a couple of actually pretty important art galleries in Denver as well. So are you a regular, again, obviously you're, you're a very busy man, but are you a regular or do you sometimes visit the art galleries in Denver? Yeah, I, I do. I absolutely visit all of them. I'm, I'm also, you know, I serve on the board of directors for the Taos Art Museum. I'm on the advisory board for the Denver Art Museum in a little club that we call wow. the, the Damn Westerners, um, which means Denver Art Museum, um, which is basically a, a group. It's an it's an acquisition committee um, for the the Denver Art Museum. Um, you know, again, based around the 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 type of art that I like to collect, which is you know American Western modernism. Well. Some people leave out the modernism, but but I don't just because I think sometimes when you say American Western, people think of like really, you know, sort of cheesy paintings. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny, though, because you say that the word modernism, if you understand a little bit about art, actually, modernism was first coined just, just after the turn of the century, wasn't it? Yeah, with, exactly. With, with, all, with, with the, the Picasso crowd down, in, down in, the, in Paris and stuff like that. That's when it was yep. coined. So modernism yep. is actually antiquity, but it's kind of still a relevant phrase in art. Yeah. Yeah. It's not... Um, People, when when I say I collect modernism, they are thinking more like a you know a Jackson Pollock or like you yeah. said even Andy Warhol. Um, but you're exactly right that that modernism is sort of almost. Um, I mean, you you could call impressionism is easy a version of modernism. It's basically moving into an era of like a modern aesthetic, and like Art Deco would be considered a type of modernism. Frank Lloyd Wright architecture that's a type of modernism. Yeah. Um, you know, even arts and crafts uh, that aesthetic. You know, like William Morris. It's it doesn't look very modernist, but technically speaking, it's starting to become what would be you know known as tech as as, as modernism, as it's like a, it's a post Victorian kind of aesthetic. Um, so anyway, interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just one other question: considering you you kind of sit on the board of you know a couple of galleries and involved in that sort of things, I, mean, I, I know that um, a lot of galleries have really struggled and have had to. Yeah. Yeah. sell sell kind of pieces just to keep going i mean if has that happened in denver or have they managed to basically ride the storm a little bit or have, have they had to kind of sell any pieces from the collection well we certainly there have been a lot of cutbacks um yeah. museum. um haven't been a whole lot of it, it, here's a term for you in the museum world it's called deaccessioning it's, it's, yes. it's not selling it deaccessioning. Yeah. um <clears throat> for the most part you know i think that that has been avoided but you know, if if the world continues as it is right now, you know, then then eventually the sale of some of those artwork pieces will have to happen. But um, but so far, so good. A lot of people have really stepped up with charitable contributions, um, which has you know, which is that's what's keeping museums alive right now. Because obviously, wow. you know, nobody's buying tickets to go to a museum right now. So what's keeping them alive are you know large charitable contributions. And small charitable contributions, any sort of charitable contribution. Yeah. So, or your local museum. No, no, first, yeah, I, I did actually buy tickets to see the Warhol exhibition at the Tate, but it shut just as I, three days after I bought the tickets. But hopefully, mate, fingers crossed, yeah. uh, we can get back into galleries and stuff because um, it kind of helps make us who we are. I mean, it, it really does. I mean, you know, we haven't even kind of touched on cycling yet, and uh, we will move on to that in a minute. But no, it's. That's really really intriguing, mate. You'll have to you'll have to send us a photograph of your the inside of your living room, mate. But um, once, I, we, once we finish the pod, you know, yeah. If, 
if people, if you if you're so curious, I think what is it like? It's two or three editions ago of Rouleur, um magazine has oh, a okay. has a spread, and it's got a photo of my living room uh, in there. So so check it out. Um, oh, nice one. Yeah, it's nice a lot one. of a lot of paintings, a lot of American uh, uh, Native American textiles as well. So it's you know, it's a fun little fun place to to live. Okay, I mean, yet last last year was a bloody you know, uh, such a strange year for, for so many reasons. And even 2021 is, is mm. almost trying to take, take a leaf out of 2020s, mm. 2020s kind of book right now. But for you, when you look back, especially uh, on what your team managed to achieve, it, would you call, how would you sum up the year if you were to choose a phrase? Because there was so much success set against a kind of awful, very, very difficult backdrop. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, that was... That was an interesting juxtaposition because, you know, we felt like uh, our team, you know, performed at a really high level all season. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's really, it's really difficult to, to celebrate victories, you know, when, I don't know, you know, I don't want to say the world is crumbling underneath you, but obviously, you know, the the financial situation in professional cycling was really unstable all year long. Um, whether the races were going to happen or not, very stable all year long, just so many open question marks. And, and, you know, when you win a race um, to really feel the joy of that, it, 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 you know, you kind of want a bit of a foundation of stability underneath you. And, and yeah. when you don't have that, it's sort of like you, you get to enjoy the race win for about five minutes. And then, you, and then you start thinking about, well, okay, but then what's going to happen tomorrow? And um, yeah, that, that, that did take the edge off of a lot of the, the, you know, a lot of the joy that we could have experienced this year. I mean, um, and what do you, I mean, when you look at the success, I mean, in terms of wins, you had 17 wins throughout the year, mm. um, as, at least one stage win in every single Grand Tour, which I believe was a first for the team as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in all of its various iterations over the years where you've been obviously at the helm since the start. Yeah. Um, was there any particular, can you kind of, it's difficult to put, um, find a reason for success, but is it something that you think you've been building towards for a long, long time? Well, I mean, for sure, since EF uh, bought the team, um, we were able to sort of a approach uh, building the roster from a more strategic standpoint and yeah. building, you know, the support network underneath the roster from a more strategic standpoint. And what I mean by that is if you look at, you know, you, you look at sort of like the early iteration of this team, the, the, the so let's call it the 2008 to 2012 2013 version of the team right yeah you know that was also strategically um constructed in that you know we had very stable financial backing um and um you know we had a vision and we were able to sort of build towards something on that and you know in that period of time you win perry roubaix you um win the giro you know it, we dominate in team time trials for many 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 years then we kind of get into this period that was a lot harder where, you know, we're merging with Cannondale and we're merging with Draypack and we're struggling to find sponsorship dollars. And, um, and a lot of those um, mergers of teams, I mean, they were absolutely necessary in order to survive. 
um, and to go forward the next year. And, and in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, cycling could use some consolidation just like those mergers represented. Yeah. But <clears throat> as the general manager, you know, stepping out of my sort of business role as a general manager, you, you don't get to choose your roster when you do a merger like that. You sort of just have, you know, a bunch of guys from one team that sort of survive their explosion smash together with a bunch of guys from your team that survived your own implosion and you yeah. lose a lot of your best talent because you know usually when you do a merger sort of like all the contracts kind of are null and void and then you build on a new organization you know where there's new contracts but you know people are free to go and so um and in that period of time as well you know you had the rise of of the mega team or the super whatever you want to call it the extremely wealthy large teams that we're seeing now like Ineos and and um, UAE yeah. so during that period we weren't there was no vision and there was no strategy into going into the roster it was just survival from year to year sure. so you know we had a bunch of really lean years there because it was you know I, I wasn't choosing the riders. No one was. We were just sort of, well, this is this is what we have. Let's make the best of it. Sure. Um, and, you know, that's tough. Now, EF steps in in 2018 and, and basically says, okay, let's start from scratch. And, and we did. Um, and, you know, 2018 was kind of, you know, a mediocre year, but okay. 2019 was a lot better, you know, winning Tour of Flanders, um, you know, starting to starting to really progress. And then I would say 2020 was the first year where it was the real sort of fruit of being able to, you know, kind of start over again um, yeah. with the roster. And so we, you know, we saw the beginnings and it's really only the beginnings of a, you know, of a strategically designed roster and of a, of a, a you know, a background network of people from, you know, coaches, sports science directors, and whatever else that have also been um, strategically designed. And, and, you know, it, it, I will say one thing amongst all those lean years is that, you know, our sports directors and, and I won't brag about too many things, um, about the team, but our sports directors in those years learned to be the absolute best sport directors in the sport of cycling because they didn't have a lot to work with and they made it work nonetheless. And, and so, you know, my so much respect for, you know, Andreas Clear and Charlie Bagelius and Tom Southern and um, Juan Magarate and that whole crew, they, you know, they learned how to win races very creatively and in, in a way that I really just, I don't see a lot of other teams functioning on as far as on the director level. It, it, that's a really, really interesting point because when you look, and I know, especially Charlie and Tom, you know, contemporaries, a little bit young, but contemporaries of mine, guys I know really well, you know, who've worked hard and, you know, I think I wouldn't necessarily call those years, you know, you're not battling adversity, but you, you have to learn to function in a completely different way. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I remember that success. Oh, it was the Giro stage that you'd won? The, the French dude whose name escapes me. Oh, Jesus! I was on the ground a couple of years back when it was Camino. Formula and Formula One. You know, it was like the first win we'd had in like a long time. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just, Sorry just about the clock. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. I thought somebody was. I thought it was uh, Uber Eats or something. Come to deliver your breakfast, some omelette or something. But, uh, but uh, <laughs> stop singing in a second here. Okay, no worries. Again, another first. We've never had a chiming clock in twenty-two editions of the podcast, so that that's new. <laughs> that's new. Uh, yeah. 
but but no, that I I think you know you colloquially known as like the, the the team of the underdogs, and 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 I think there was a kind of you you kind of built this unknowingly or un, without any intent. You kind of built this kind of support base. You're a team right. that I think a lot of people love, but you didn't set out to do that. You just did it because you just grafted. And I, and I think that's one of the things that you can't build from from scratch. You have to earn it. And and I threw that. And um, I, I just think it's a very, very interesting genesis that you, your teams have to work really, really hard. You, you've managed to, to, for want of a better phrase, cobble teams together. But through yeah. that, you've had remarkable continuity. Yourself and, as you said, Charlie, Tom, Andreas, Manuel. You know, you've had different riders through that time, but there's been a real consistent backbone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know... And, and I mean this with all respect to, you know, the riders that we've had come through the program over the years. But, you know, we've never had just sort of like a, a very highly paid blue chip winner on the team because we've never been able to afford one. You know, yeah. but, I mean, Peter Sagan's salary is essentially like our entire rider payroll, you know. Um, so what we end up a lot of times with or like guys that other teams you know that they didn't fit in or that they didn't like or that they were high maintenance or that they were really talented but you know they were difficult to work with etc etc right yeah and so you know when you're taking sort of riders that are really young and kind of don't know what they're doing or they're older and they have not a bad reputation but they're considered a little bit crazy and the other teams don't want to deal with them or they're higher maintenance or more difficult or or their talent has been hidden under, you know, injuries and so on and so forth. When you take that, when you say, okay, we're going to take a guy that I feel like has the underlying talent, but there are all these problems stacked on top of that. Well, you know, who gets to unravel those problems? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The directors, you know, it's Charlie, it's Andreas, it's Juanma, it's, you know, it's Southern. Like those are the guys that they have to unravel the problems in order to get the best out of the rider. And, that's you know it, it's a it's a really hard way to function. It is really gratifying though when you sort of get the rider that no one would have expected to win to win. Yeah, and you know I mean I, I and I know maybe there'll be a lot of cycling fans that won't like to hear this, but like you know if Matthew Vanderpool or Bob Van Aert win Tour of Flanders, to me it's kind of like okay. Great, and the sun came up this morning. I mean, it's it's like okay, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> there's not there's not a lot of like mystery into how that happened. It's like massive engine, marquee rider, big salary. You know, it's just plug and play, right? Like yeah. you know, flip this switch on, flip that, boom, boom. Okay, off and running. Where we go? When Alberto Betiol wins Tour of Flanders. <clears throat> It's not plug and play, you know, it's, it's carefully designed. It's, <clears throat> it's not making a single mistake for like weeks before the race and on the race day, the, you know, the tactics, the execution, everything has to be perfect because you make one tiny little goof up and you know, it's, it's just, it's just game over when you don't, when you don't have just this like raw horsepower to kind of just pound over the top of the mistakes but, you know, as hard as that is, um, when you come out the other end of that, it is like triply gratifying because everyone in the team 
knows that actually they did have a part to play in that. I mean, I know we hear that a lot. Like everyone on the team had a part to play in this victory. Yardy, yardy, yardy. Eh, okay. But like when a guy like Betiel wins, everyone really did have a part to play in it because the R margin for error was, you know, zero. Whereas, you know, your Wout Van Aerts and your Matthew Vanderpools, the margin for error is much larger, you know, yeah, for, yeah. for that level of a motor. Yeah, it, and I, I think it was a, a beautiful, beautiful victory. And it's, an, uh, but when you look at Alberto Betiol's trajectory to that point, there was always this kind of, and to go back to your analogy about unearthing talent, or I, I like to use, when when you talked about that in my in my mind, I some somehow I was at an archaeological dig, and there was these bones, and there was these kind of archaeologists just chipping away, unearthing these kind of bones or all these treasures just gently chipping away. And that's the kind of role of a DS, isn't it? It's complex yeah. work. It's yeah. painstaking. It, it, rely, it relies, you need a lot of faith. You need a massive investment. And also, you know, it might not come off. There's that, but, but when it does, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I think that right. is one of the, and the, the complex nature of the genesis of a victory like that, like that is, is where, why this sport is so beautiful. And, and it was really interesting because there was, a lot of people, I mean, the vast majority were like, Betty, all this is fantastic. And then a few people were like, what? Why did he win? He shouldn't have won. Right. That was, well, that, well, that was a really average Flanders because he won. And, he, you know, he wasn't one of the favorites. It's like, well, that, that's right. the beauty of the sport. You've yeah. got, you've hit the nail on the head in the wrong direction there. I mean, it was really funny. I was, I was, uh, I wasn't commentating that day, but I know um, Sean Kelly was, and he put money on Betiol. He'd looked at him, he thought, Betiol's got some form. He's not, he's not, He's been there or thereabouts, and he's just and and he he said, yeah, Bessiel's going to win today out of, out of the bunch of us wow. sport. Uh, and he put, I think he might have put twenty quid on it, like hundred to one or 60, 60 to wow. one. Wow. So and that just shows, you know, like I mean, I mean, Kelly is forensic. He's a lovely guy, but yeah. he's so he's he's forensic, and he he said, yeah, Bessiel's the man. He's coming up to good form. I think he's going to take maybe go long, and he did. <laughs> so I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> no, I did not. And that's 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 actually great to hear. Yeah, I remember, you know, when when Johan von Sommer won Perry Roubaix in 2011, the headlines in Le Keep the next day were sort of more about how much of a disappointment it is that, you know, that Garmin back then, our team, like that we had like robbed the public of a of an epic battle between Tor Huzov and and Fabian Consolara. Yeah. And um as opposed to that Johan von Sommer and Juan. And, and that, that always struck me as, as just like, I don't know. I, I just, I mean, just absolutely, well, not only silly, but disappointing that, you know, that, that, that like you said, that people, you know, sometimes don't dig into what the real beauty of how, how team tactics and strategy on the day work. Yeah. No, it, it's uh, it, it's it's it really is kind of fascinating stuff, and uh, I mean, you talk about the kind of the way your team has kind of evolved over the years and the kind of direction it's taken. I mean, what about um, your ideology? So, is that does that come about because of circumstances? You know, um, financial kind of you know um, climate at the time, or just because you're left with this bunch of riders who you kind of, or is there something from you? Because obviously you've been doing this a long time now. You're learning. You're still a relatively young man at 47, um, but with a lot of experience now running teams. Um, you've got a degree of stability now. It's great to see that Nippo have come on board. They're going to be around for a while, we hope. 
Um, but what about the ideology? Because you've had so many kind of different sponsors on board, yeah. you know, different kind of brands that are coming yeah. from different places. But, you know, where does that come from? Is it from you? Is it a combination of different different things? Because each team, when you, you talk to different riders from different teams and you, you hang out with different teams or just your perception of teams, the way they conduct themselves, the way they race, the way they're on social media – and, and coupled with the kind of history, short or long, each team, you have a sense of something, a spirit about each team. So mm. your team, so <clears throat> where do you think that comes from? Well, um, not to use the word, you've got a few questions kicking around. In yeah, the, yeah. The, but, uh, but, you know, I have a personal love, I suppose, for you know, individual expression and individual freedoms and individual rights. Um, and so I, you know, I enjoy um, riders who, who are individuals, who are strong-minded, who are highly intelligent, that yeah. maybe aren't always that malleable. Like, you know, I mean, eventually we parted ways for a lot of different reasons, but, you know, for instance, like Rowan Dennis, like I, I like Rowan Dennis, you know, yeah. when, when he came onto the world tour as a Neo pro with our team, it was, you know, I mean, he's an incredibly talented guy. Right. But it was basically, there weren't that many other teams that actually wanted him. Um, because again, he was a difficult personality, but I actually like the guy, you know, um, he's, he's a handful, but on, on a real personal level, I like the guy. Um, yeah. I like, um, you know, I, I like people that sort of push against authority. I like people who push against the system. Now, where this becomes a juxtaposition is that I've always thought from a business standpoint um, that one of cycling's failings uh, as a sport is that the individual name is sort of always greater um, than the team name. Sure. And the, the problem with that is, is if you have a sponsor putting 10 million, 20 million, 40 million, whatever it is, and the individual name of the rider is superseding that of the sponsor or the team, I mean, this doesn't happen in other team sports, right? Yeah. I mean, Real Madrid is Real Madrid's. FC Barcelona is FC Barcelona, you know, um, it's, of course there are stars within that context, but like the individual doesn't supersede the team over time. Right. And so I always thought, well, this team needs to be built on the ideal of that. The team is always the center point from, uh, you know, a, a public, uh, perception standpoint from a public yeah. relation standpoint, a media standpoint, the team is always a center point. And any individual rider will always be sort of secondary to the team, right? Yeah. Well, what I just said a minute ago, saying that I highly value incredibly intelligent uh, riders, you know, that buck against the system, that believe in their individual rights. Well, you know, a lot of times guys like that, they don't want the team to be first. They, they, they want to be first. Yeah. Um, so you get this sort of push-pull in, in, inside of our team. Um, and you, you get a lot of... Uh, really unique characters and over time. And, th and then especially going back to like the, you know, the really strong anti-doping ethos that we started out with um, over time, 
that culture, it's just grown on its own in that it's a culture of like self-responsibility. Meaning one of the biggest reasons we did so well this year is that in a lockdown environment, our riders were self-responsible. They took care of themselves. They went out training. They took care of their nutrition. They didn't, you know, goof off, whatever. They, they, our team has always had an environment of if, you know, we're going to give you the platform, but it's up for you to make it happen. It's up to you to make it happen. This is not a babysitting team. We do not drag guys around to endless training camps and, you know, watch what they're eating and watch what they're doing. Like this is, this is a team where the coaching is there for you. We're there for you. We, you know, you have the resources to get whatever you need done, but it's up to you. Um, to take advantage. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, just be, it's, it's many things, but it's, you know, it's trust as well, isn't it? Somebody, yeah. it's, yeah. it's a big thing, you know, because the disparate nature of last year, the geographically disparate nature, yeah. mm-hmm. um, it was, and to see your guy, I mean, your guys like riding on Zwift and stuff. And actually, I know it's a bit of a sideline, but your team were you know, one of the teams that really actually got to grips with that. It's not certainly for everybody, but mm-hmm. you know, you were, you were so professional. It's great to see because it isn't, you know, Zwift, especially amongst the pros, there's a load of guys on it, but it's not for everybody. And no. it was really interesting to see how the various teams got to grips with what yeah. I thought was a big opportunity, you know, to, to engage with the fans, to keep the, get, get a sense of kind of uh, competition. I don't know, but it, and it was, and that's interesting that you say they were kind of not exactly left to their own devices, but yeah, they had to run their own kind of show. Yeah. And our team's always been about that. So I think yeah. you know, between those three elements, right, that it's, it, it, we're a team of self-responsibility, we're a team of, you know, of individuals, but we're a team that always puts the team first. Well, all that stuff kind of jumbles in together into, into what I would call our ethos, our spirit. Sure. Um, and you can really feel that, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Like there are <clears throat> like the people always say, well, you know, how do you recruit this guy versus that guy or whatever, you know, the, the people that come to our team, um, you know, it's where they want to go to. Like, it's, it's funny how, like, they feel like, Oh, these guys I'll fit in here, you know? Like it's, it's a team for sort of outsiders a little bit and people who are, that are maybe a little, you know, too intellectual for bike racing at times. It's a place for individualists, but also for people that understand the bigger picture. Like, so we attract like a certain type of very self-responsible person, somebody who totally, you know, the, the anti-doping ethos, you know, but people kind of ask me, well, do you really have to still push on that really hard? No, because the people attracted to our team, you know, they're, 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 they know that's such a part of it. Like it's like they're coming in and actually becoming their own enforcement and the riders amongst themselves from a cultural group are probably the strongest enforcement measures that we have is that, that, you know, that group they're watching out for each other. And that yeah, Yeah, that's, that's quite, that's quite an interesting one, isn't it? I think that, that element of it, you know, there's almost like a, within the cycling fraternity amongst the pros there's almost like a a, society, a complete and utter societal change isn't there you know in relation yeah. to attitudes towards doping which it's almost unspoken now it's like well yeah of course i'm anti-doping why on earth do you think i would be you know it's just like what what do you, what do you mean we do we need to talk about it we just go get on with our jobs and people are going to get busted if they get busted it's it's a right. different which people might some people might look at it maybe who don't really fully understand the history of of, of cycling think well that's weird why aren't they kind of you know um still going on about it but it's good yeah. that they're not because it's it's been normalized that 
okay, it's it's not institutionalized anymore. Right. For right. That's a, that that is that is exactly right. That's exactly right. It's also you know people say you know well who do you, you know you get into like sort of bidding wars or battle recruitment battles with different teams on certain riders and. And it's sort of funny, and, and there are certain teams that you know that that I do sort of get into into you know into battles to try to recruit guys. But it's funny in that, like for instance, you know, Decoinic. I don't think I've ever really come up, quote unquote, against Patrick Lefevre in okay. recruiting the rider. And you know, and they're obviously an immensely successful team. But like the mentality of a of a neo pro that wants to go onto a world tour team, you know, super talented twenty twenty one year old. If their mentality is, I want to be part of the wolf pack, I want to be like Belgian hard man, you know, that's, they're not going to be attracted to our team at all. Yep. And conversely, a guy that is thinking, you know, I want to do things my own way, you know, whatever the, the Rowan Dennis example, I want to do things my own way. I want to, um, you know, I want to carve my own path. I'm coming at this from a different angle. I want to be given freedom of thought. I want to blah, blah, blah. Well, they're, you know, they're not going to go to the wolf pack. You know, that's, so it's a, it's, it's funny in that, that it almost like just self-selects. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's funny. I was, as I said to you before, I, I did um, a podcast with, uh, with Hugh Carthy the other day and, and during my kind of research before that, what was a wonderful chat with him, by the way, um, I was reading about, you know, he was approached by Ineos, but basically, um, he kind of loosely said, didn't give any names, but he said he spoke to somebody in senior management and just said, oh, well, I just know I'm really not going to fit in with you guys. Thanks for kind of asking, but I want to go somewhere else. And it was with you. That was after his spell right. at Caja Rural, you know? Yeah. Um, and he came to you and it, uh, but, and almost like with a shrug of the shoulders, I'm just not going to, it wasn't disrespectful. It's just that, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to fit in with you, but these guys I am. And, and that's, that's a good thing. It's healthy that there are teams with different sort of environments, you know, it's, doesn't mean that any one team, depending on your standpoint, of course, is better or worse. It just means there are places for people to go yeah. that they will be not necessarily nurtured, but given an opportunity to properly fulfill their potential in, in the environment that's most sort of like physiologically, well, more often than not, that's psychologically kind of beneficial for them. Yeah. I mean, different teams fit different people. I mean, Hugh, yeah. I think Hugh fits in really well here. And he's a writer that Charlie and I, really focused on recruiting and you know we we've i mean we're just pleased as punch it like at his development like he's sort of a you know a classic um writer of this organization takes him a little longer than like an Avenapoel or whatever to find his feet you know he's he's only coming into his own now you know five or six years after turning pro yeah. um but he you know he he is an example of steady eddie wins the race um he's a consummate professional he his teammates love him um and you know and 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 then all of a sudden he pops up out of nowhere and you know it, it almost proves to be a spoiler at the vuelta and people will say well you know where did that come from you know etc cetera, etc cetera. well if you watch the last six seven years of hugh carthy you can see where it comes from <laughs> good it's a it's it's one of the most steady kind of um, workmanlike ascensions yeah. to kind of the top that I've kind of seen. And it's always been there. If, Like you say, you have to kind of, you had to know the sport a little bit, don't you? You have to kind yeah. of chip away a little bit, understand each rider's kind of trajectory. But, you know, I, I wouldn't have said that, um, wouldn't have stuck my neck out and said he would have got on a podium this year, last year at the Vuelta. But 
But when yeah. you look at it, it wasn't really a surprise. He's just that good. And, yeah. and there's been some wonderful glimmers. And it's like, okay. And of course, he's, he's, he's only 26 still. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. you know? It's just, it's just a lovely, wonderful, natural trajectory where he's clearly been given space to, with, with not an undue amount of pressure on him. And, it, and, he's, and it's lovely to see a rider flourish like that rather than kind of come onto the scene, burn out, and just disappear, which we've seen to a lot of youngsters in the past. And, uh, oh, yeah. and, uh, and with that, that, that wonderful kind of foundation, um, guys, it's, it's going to be exciting to see him in the next few years, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, uh, I owe him a phone call. Like, I, I should call him actually today. Like, it sort of reminds me. And, and um, you know, what I need to say to him is basically, I mean, obviously, um, you know, with, with ongoing problems with COVID and whatever else, you know, I wasn't able to really give anyone um, in our organization any sort of pay raise. Um, and Hugh being no exception. And I, I just, I I've been kind of putting this off, but I, I know his reaction will be like, oh, don't worry about it, JV, like on with business we go. And, you know, but I, you know, I, I kind of want to call up and say, man, I'm really sorry. I, I wish I had the money to, you know, to, to, uh, to give you a pay raise after finishing third in the Vuelta. But unfortunately, <clears throat> you know, times are a bit tough right now. Um, and, you know, just thanks for, you know, thanks for not sort of holding my feet to the coals on that and, and going out in the press and saying that he's looking at five other teams and et cetera, et cetera. Like a lot of writers would do in that situation, right? Like, okay, I'm the new, I'm the new hot thing and, and my team manager is not giving me a pay raise because, you know, because the money isn't there. So I'm, I'm going to make his life miserable in the interim, you know, until this contract is over with, but Hugh's never done that. And I know when I call him and say all this, that his response will be sort of almost along the lines of, I don't know why you're even calling me to say this. Like, it's totally fine. Like, you know, whatever, we'll talk about it in a few months and, and see where we go from there. And, and I, I just know that it, w- it won't, it won't be an issue and he'll almost be like confused that I'm being somewhat apologetic about it, but that's you. You would have made that call by the time this goes out, which is good, <laughs> so, yeah. which yeah. is great stuff. I'll tell you what we're going to do, JV. We've, we've been on the big ring and we've been probably riding along at, I reckon, 38K an hour. It's a, been a nice speed, but what we're going to do now, we're just hitting a little climb. So we're going to knock it onto the small ring and introduce a new section of um, my Unplugged podcast. And it's it's basically a quiz based on your home city of Denver. Oh, dear. Gosh. So here we go. So we've got a brand new jingle, which will be inserted in post about now. Yeah. Bang. A Denver quiz. A Denver quiz. Now it's time. A Denver quiz. It is not John Denver I'm referring to. It is the city of Denver in Colorado, USA. However, John Denver might actually feature in the Denver quiz. I cannot rule that out. Anyway, how how are you on? I mean, on Denver, you're a, you, you kind of you you brought up there. You live there now. Do you kind of know the score pretty much? I mean, I, I'm I'm a Denver native, but that doesn't mean I'm an expert in Denver history or trivia. So okay. <laughs> I guess we'll find I've got. Out. I've got f- I've got three questions on Denver and another yeah. question on Denver, which is slightly more tangential. So that, that's that's far away anyway, uh, but no stress. And a couple of them are, are, are the multiple choice anyway. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so, so no stress. We're not going to put you on the spot. First up is this: 
When was Denver founded? Okay. Was it A, 1854? Was it B, 1858? Or was it C, 1861? Boy, uh, those are all quite close together. So it's not like this is not an easy multiple choice. I'm not telling you, it was 1976. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go with 1861. I'm afraid that is incorrect, uh, John. It was 1858. Um, not a great start, but I must admit those, maybe I should broaden the date range when I do multiple choice yeah. questions. Like hey, they're all within like five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had some, <laughs> a bit later, we're going to do guess that snack. And, and Hugh gave me some feedback on the guess that snack quiz. He said that the, the snacks, the variety of the snacks I chose were too close. And therefore it was difficult to recognize the crunch. Uh, between each one so you gave me yeah yeah there we go so i always listen to feedback um anyway question number two singer songwriter john denver Mm. was born in denver true or false 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 (laughs) i know that one so for a bonus question where was he born where was john denver born oh boy um i'll give you a cheeky little clue yeah there's one of those um is it area 57 or area 54 out in the desert okay so is he born in roswell new mexico correct amundo but his uh the pull out his was ashes were scattered in the rockies in colorado though so there is a bit of a colorado kind of link there to well new mexico and colorado are kind of we're we have this funny relationship We're, we're 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 almost like twin sisters Ah, okay. Just one of us has a better suntan. (laughs) Fair enough. We're talking to sisters. That leads me on very nicely to question number three. Um, Could you please, this isn't multiple choice. You're going to have to dig deep into your memory bank here, mate. Uh, Please name three sister cities or twin towns to Denver. There are about 12 or 15. So could you just name three of them? Um, You get a point for each. Um, Ah. (laughs) Is this multiple choice too? No, it isn't. I'm afraid. Oh, <laughs> that man. would take me too long. Uh, so if you could just so basically, yeah, there's four, eight, uh, ten. So there's a a mix of twin towns and sister cities. Um, there's I, one that I was from one in Mongolia. Um, uh, hold on a minute, mate. Is it Ulaanbaatar, Colombia? Yes, there's one. I'm, I'm going to give Mongolia. I'm going to give you that. There's one in Mongolia, which is the Mongolia. latest. Colombia, Colombia, Mongolia, boy. So Mongolia, it's a place called Ulaanbaatar. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, yeah. Ulan yeah, brilliant stuff. So, yeah, okay. So I know you name, that. Can you name another one? And I feel like there's 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 one in Japan. There is. Um, and it's sort of like, oh, just it's one of the secondary cities in Japan. But I'm I'll give you a clip. It begins with T. It ends with a T or starts with a T? It starts with a T. Starts with a T. Yeah, I'm not going to get this one, but it, I, it's like, a, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a secondary city sort of like on the outskirts of Tokyo. Um, I can't remember it. It's Takayama from okay. 1960. But that was a, a very, very, I mean, I'm going to give you a point there for getting Japan. Um, and can you somehow unearth one more? Sister City. Um, Think of the signs. Think of when you've been out on your bike 
and you've walked past the, the signs and there's a yeah, little flag. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think there's one in the UK. There might be. There, yeah, there's not one in the UK, yeah. that's for sure. No, there's not one in the UK. There, uh, I, you know, um, how about Lyon, France, just as a wild guess? There is one in France. I'm going to give you a point for that, but it's actually Brest, Brest in France, which is the earliest. Uh, and that was the first um, twin ship that was established way back in 1948. So pretty good. Oh, there's one more question. I've got one more question for you, and it's back to multiple choice. So yeah. rest easy. Uh, for the, the final question in the Denver quiz, and you've done pretty well so far. We'll get the points tally up uh, probably after the podcast because I haven't been keeping score, really. Um, what, JV, is the tallest building in Denver, is it? Yeah. Is it the Wells Fargo Building? Mm-hmm. Is it the Republic Plaza, or is it eighteen oh one California? Republic Plaza. Correct, Amondo. For a bonus point um, to offset your uh, opening question, which you get wrong, um, can you give me within five? No, within ten meters, its height. <laughs> <laughs> Above sea level or like from the ground just, up? Just the action, just from the ground up. Oh my god! Uh, within ten meters, boy. Let's see here. Uh, I'll go with three hundred and eighteen meters. It's not quite right. It's, it's you. You kind of about. Well, you're ninety nine meters out. It's mm-hmm. two hundred nineteen meters, which is still pretty tall. Which is seven hundred and seventeen feet. I think you did pretty well there, mate. So give yourself a round of applause or a pat on the back. No, thank you. There you go. I swear I need a happy ammo on too. Yeah, the, the top three, Republic Plaza. Then you've got 1801 California at three meters below that. And then the next one, Wells Fargo is at 213. So they're all quite close. Yeah. You know, it's a tricky one though, because the Wells Fargo one is built on a little bit of a hill. So like... Ah. <clears throat> if you're flying over the top of downtown Denver, that's the one that looks the highest. There you go. So, uh, so quite a tough question, then. But uh, you, you, you were bang on the money. There was no hesitation. You were straight in there, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is good to see. Um, JV, would you say that you're pretty disruptive, a kind of person? <clears throat> I mean, I don't mean in a nasty way. I mean, like just the way your outlook. You kind of want to change things. You're looking at. Put it pushing against the status quo a little bit and up for kind of shifting the kind of the order around for the better good is what I kind of mean. Yeah. I mean, yes, but without necessarily, I, I feel like disruptor, like that term is just so overused right now. And so yeah. there's not necessarily an intention for me to be disruptive. It's just that if I see a problem, I will try to fix it no matter how embedded or traditional or well thought of the problem is. So, you know, in sort of my ongoing 15 year old or 15 years and running issues with, you know, the UCI, it's, it's not that like, you know, I'm just trying to be a jerk. I mean, I, I think they feel that way. They definitely feel like I'm just trying to be a thorn in their side just to gain attention or, or whatever it might be. Um, but it's not that at all. It's just, it's fundamentally, I don't think that it's an organization that is equipped to be running a professional sport. Um, you know, that it's, it's fine as a governing body for, you know, an amateur and or sort of Olympic sport. Um, but when you get into a more professional setting and a sport that's maybe attempting to 
join, you know, a professional league type model, the UCI is just not, they're not set up that way. And so they, they don't think of things that way. And, um, and I think it holds the sport of cycling back a lot. And so I just don't, you know, I, I, I call it out every time I see it. Yeah. They get upset and other people get upset and, and then they, you know, and then they do something that makes me upset and on and on and on we go. But as just an example, but, um, you know, I mean, the most hilarious conversation I think I've ever had was with the license commission this year. When, okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Is that, you know, it was about the, you know, the palace Giro. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you about that, how it kind of came about. I mean, I know it's well documented. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, you know, and listen, yes, that is, it was disruptive and we just sort of went for it and, you know, um, but we're in this argument with the UCI because, you know, they said we didn't submit the jersey design. And we said, yes, we did submit the jersey design. We just didn't submit it with the palace logo because you can legally do that. If you're submitting a jersey design for approval, it can be missing some of the sponsor logos just as long as the design is correct. And they said, well, why did you submit it without the palace logo? And... I said, because of confidentiality reasons, Palace is very, when they do what they call a drop, you know, they yeah. they want it to be like a big explosion. Like it doesn't, cycling is like notorious for leaking everything. Like, like nothing is a secret in cycling for longer than three hours. So you actually kept that one a secret, right? Yeah. And, and they're like, well, we can't believe that you would think the UCI would leak confidential information like that. And then, I mean, one, that almost made me laugh, them saying, oh, that the UCI would never leak anything. But second, then we get into this argument. And they, I said, well, you know, we left the, the logo off. And they said, no, 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 you left off certain design elements. And I said, okay, well, what are these design elements? Well, um, the duck. And I said, <laughs> the duck. Sorry. I said, the duck is, is part of the logo. And they're like, no, it's a design element. So all of a sudden, I'm arguing, you know, in this phone call with the guys like these saying, no, a duck is a design element. It is not a logo. And I'm saying, no, it's a logo, not a design. And I'm like, and finally, <laughs> the chairman of the license committee, this guy has been there forever, Pierre Zappelli, he's, he's like, he just stops and he's like, gentlemen, are we really arguing about whether a duck is a logo or a design <laughs> element? <laughs> he's right, though. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, um, it, but it was it was good though. I mean, like I say, like you say. I mean, the thing is, you've been doing this long enough, you know. But sometimes things things need a bit of a shake up, you know. And, and um, otherwise, we're going to be kind of mired and kind of stuck in the past. And um, and and I think there are certain organisations. I mean, we can step away from cycling and look at large governing bodies. Or even organizations that have been around for a long time have a particular structure and hierarchy. And, and something I learned very when I joined the police many years ago was that generally the larger an organization, the more slow moving it becomes. And that's something right. that stayed with me. Um, and these organized organizations kind of lumber along and they, 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 they're not you know, equipped to change. The kind of system of, of hiring and firing is very kind of institutionalized. There's no freshness to it. Right. And, um, and that's, I, I don't, I think that's, dangerous and i don't think it's particularly um that doesn't mean that there's elements of it that are kind of good and there's that kind of history and stuff but but you should always be looking you know um, ahead and 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 behind and, and across and, and and looking at different ways especially our, our sport is complex troubled uh, 
always on the kind of precipice, it seems. But somehow it kind of keeps moving forward. But, yeah. you know, you shouldn't accept that. We should always try and think, well, how can we make this sport better? Because ultimately, you're doing it. You're doing what you do because you bloody love it. Is it clearly a passion? You do it in a different way than everybody else. Everybody's got their own kind of way of, of, of doing things. But ultimately, you're not doing it to destroy the sport. You're doing it because you think it can be better. <laughs> and that's yeah. and so there you should be afforded the kind of platform to debate it. But there's, there's so many people these days appear to be, to me, to be so, so emphatic. The kind of nuance of conversation, especially when a lot of these spats, and I'm not using yours in particular, but spats on social media, um, it's very, very hard to, I, I don't really engage a lot in kind of arguments on social media because it frustrates me and it kind of drains me. So I just generally just act the fool on social media and just have a bit of a laugh with it. But right. and I, I do watch from afar. I, I do see and I can see almost like the lifeblood being drained out of good friends of mine sometimes when they engage in anything political or um, on social media. Um, it's just, it's just, I find it fascinating. It's, you know, interestingly, one of the reasons I initially really liked Twitter, you know, decade ago was that it allowed you to debate points with a whole new group of people that you would normally never get to meet. Yeah. And that, you know, you were being given a, a, a point of view that you would never be exposed to and that that was actually probably productive and healthy to, to sort of move things forward. Unfortunately, I would say that a lot of that has devolved and that we that social media, as opposed to sort of opening our minds to new ideas, has actually just made us more entrenched in what we were already thinking. And so then we follow people that reinforce the ideas that we already had, and then they follow us and reinforce the ideas they already had. And then we look and say, you know, well, look at all these really popular people that I follow or all the, you know, and they liked something I said, and therefore that must be right. Yes. And so we're just all walking around in, you know, I think, you know, 50 years ago or, or whatever, 15 years ago, you know, you had your social bubble and it may have been an echo chamber, but it was sort of limited to maybe your 10 closest friends and family members. Now, you know, your echo chamber, it's still just an echo chamber, but it's 500 people or a thousand people or whatever it might be, which I think leads us to everyone thinking to, to, to like an increased sense of self-righteousness that our opinions are right. <coughs> and man, that it bothers me. And, and, and you know, in, in the political stuff, I mean, one of the biggest things that, you know, th this year I sort of I mean, my social group, right? It's, you know, you, you, you've, it's a, it's a lot of, you know, I mean, EF, it's a Swedish company originally, right? Who's based on the East coast of the United States. And I live in a neighborhood that's very uh, diverse and liberal from a political standpoint. So my, you know, my sort of social echo chamber, I really, you know, they, they are more liberal, more sort of socialist leaning sort of that, that's, that would be my immediate surroundings. I mean, not socialism, maybe going a little too far, but, um, but you know, I, my cousins and my uh, uncle, um, they're cattle ranchers. Yeah. Um, and they're and you know, and they raise hogs and they live on the Western slope of Colorado, which is a very different place from the very urban uh, cosmopolitan Denver. And, you know, I just started kind of paying attention to what they were saying and what their beliefs are. And man, did that take me out of my echo chamber? You know, it was, it, it was like, whoa, you know, I need to realize 
you know, I mean, I, I posted something, I don't forget it was on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. It's just a, it was a, a stupid little thing that was from the Iowa Farm Bureau. Um, you know, and, and my family still owns a farm. I, in Illinois. I saw that about the topsoil, yeah. how important yeah. the top, the six inches of topsoil or something. I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that, that's exactly it. It's like, you know, for all of the accomplishments that mankind has ever made and so on and so forth, we owe it all to, you know, six inches of nutrient rich topsoil and the fact that it rains and you take that away and, you know, we're all dead. So, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, you, ju- you just need a, a perspective that goes well beyond um, just what you're reading and hearing about inside of your own little social circle. And, and that especially applies in cycling. And so, you know, cycling, I think, a lot, you know, you're saying disruptive, but here's the thing is that there's, I, there are very few people, I think that, that don't, that respect the historical aspect of cycling the way I do and respect it in the way that I view it as, that the the history of cycling is necessary for its survival. It's necessary for its flourishing. It's necessary for business. Like as much as we're in this instant gratification sort of video game age of being, you're never going to dumb cycling down to that level. Like, I, I mean, you can, okay, Zwift a little bit and whatever else, but like, but end of the day, is cycling will live and die on the fact that it is epic that yeah. it is an oddity, yeah. that it is an adventure, that it is, you know, that the Tour de France is something that was done on like, I bet you a human being cannot accomplish this. You know, like if we lose that and we just turn bike races into sort of television friendly, you know, Instagram friendly things, then I don't, I, I just don't, I don't think it's a competitive sport. I think there are many, many other forms of entertainment that are, that are going to, be far more interesting if you're trying to put cycling in that like, you know, little box of being television friendly or, or viewership friendly. It, its strength is that it's, it supersedes that its strength is that it's 120, 140 years old, that it is, you know, something that sort of, that challenges the, the limits of the human body. Like that, that has to remain intact. And so, um, you know, in some ways, yes, disruptive, sure. But in other ways, I, I would, I would almost say, you know, I'm almost, now, as I look to the, a lot of these new formats that are coming in, I'm almost feeling like I'm disruptive in that I feel very, um, defensive of races like Perry roubaix and Tour of Flanders yeah. saying, we, whoa, we need to like, this, this is sacred. Don't, you know, you can do a lot of things here, but don't touch this. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting one because I think I'm quite progressive, but I'm also quite traditional. I, I, I think I think the two can be balanced, um, but it's always it's always a constant challenge. And yeah, I think I think it's um, I, I always anybody new that I kind of speak to about cycling and understanding cycling, I, I just suggest them that yeah, cycling is beautiful. It's amazing. You know, it's it's kind of modern. There's so many different aspects to it that are interesting. Let alone just how you know, 200 riders, you know, um, interact with each other in a bike race and all the, the almost infinite kind of possibilities of how, of what the outcome might be. But it's just dig a little bit into the past. And you talk about, you know, the, um, the kind of pioneers back in the, the turn of the century. So we're talking, you know, like early 1900s when, when de Grange set the tour up, you know, he basically, as you just kind of alluded to, he kind of made it so hard that, you know, you only had a few finishes every year. And, and actually stopped the riders in the 1920s, 1930s using derailleur gears yeah. over the mountains. And it was only because 
you had two Tour de France's running back at that time. You had the, the pros riding on, on a single gear over the mountain passes. Yeah. And you had a cyclo tourist uh, event. And it there was this crossover when, I can't remember the exact year, when the cyclo tourist riders were beating the professionals because they had access to Dorelia gears. And it took five years. Yeah. For, yeah. Five yeah. years for the Grands to agree because the riders, the pros went on strike. <laughs> and they right. said, we, we can't be taken seriously because we're being beaten by these cyclo tourist amateurs. And until you let us use Dorelia gears, then we're not going to ride anymore. And that was the turning point. Right. It's right. Fair, but stuff like that. And when you learn about, you know, the, the, the early Juros and the fact that, you know, the women participated back in the early days against the men and, um, and the kind of socioeconomic, uh, kind of religious kind of climate um, that affected the early Juro, be blessed by the Pope. And I yeah. don't know, this, it, it, it is fascinating. It is, I mean, you just go from like, 19, like 1945 and before that, read about cycling history and you will be blown away. That's yeah. what I try and say to people. And there's a lot of good books out there as well you can read about it. No, that's that's absolutely right. And and you know, and I think <clears throat> the popularity we've seen with Lachlan Morton on our team because yeah. that's almost like you know reverse disruptive, and in, in that he's almost taking it back to that era. Um, in that he, it's like he's doing things that are that are just like to see if you can do it. You know, it, it's not. Yeah. You know, one of the ideas we had, that, and I'll give credit to. Philip Holt, who's the chairman of, of EF, um, an incredibly creative person. And he asked me, it was, the timeline was a little too short to pull it off. And, oh, man, if we would have done this. But, you know, we might, maybe we'll do it in the next couple of years. But yeah. um, he said, you know, could we have Lachlan start at the same time as the Giro? But, <laughs> but here's the thing. He's by himself. Not supported at all. Like he has no support. So he has to figure out everything, food, flat tires, whatever. No transfers. Like he he doesn't get to ride in a bus or a truck or whatever or an airplane for transfers. And he's like, if he starts the same time as the Giro, but he can, you know, he can ride or he can sleep or not sleep as much as he wants. Can he make it to Milan before the Giro does? So he has no rest days. He, you know, sleeps five hours a night or whatever, maybe less. Like he can take... You know, but he has to follow the route and he has to follow the transfers and he, you know, and it's totally self-supported. Can he make it to Milan before the Giro makes it to Milan? Um, and we kind of did the math on it and it was like, well, it'll be close. Like, we don't know. <laughs> anyway, but uh, we didn't end up doing that. But but I don't know. It's kind of a, it's kind of a cool idea and it's kind of, I don't know. Yeah, well, anyway. We could debate whether it's a good idea or not. Was uh, is was is Lachlan in on that conversation? Oh, no, no. <laughs> does he know what? Does he know what's coming? <laughs> I asked him. I just said, "Well, the first thing, Philip, that I need to do is ask Lachlan if this is viable for him on a personal level." And I and I called Lachlan, and Lachlan's like, "Yeah, I'm up for it. Sure, let's let's do that." He's it's it's. I know we haven't even. I mean, we've had a wonderful. We're nearly we're over an hour into the conversation. It's. I'm sure we could chat for hours. But it, I mean, the, the Lachlan Morton proposition and the kind of and um, you know what EF and and Rafa have kind of combined with everybody in the team. This kind of other dimension to the team. I think is. I personally think is wonderful. And uh, it was at the back end of when was it? Back into 2019 um, that I I chased to Lachlan at the Ruler Classic. We were on stage and, and I interviewed him about his endeavours. It was the GB Duro that he did, and the stories—it's just wonderful. I mean, and I, you know, I—I'm I, a purist. I love—I love kind of all different elements of racing, but that spirit of adventure is how I got into cycling. I mean, I just yeah. went out on hostel trips with yeah. my mate, 
with a few pounds in my pocket. We stayed at youth hostels. We even stayed in barns with sleeping bags. And that was before, I, I can't remember, it's like the late 80s, but that was when I, I properly, apart from seeing the tour, I actually properly head over heels fell in love with cycling. Per, just generally, yeah. just adventuring. And yeah. I think we, we should always remember that. And to have a, pro, a world tour team that's flying the flag for going out and having an adventure isn't just a cool thing. It's I think it's important. Well, that's, I've always said, again, you know, this is, it, it's bringing back sort of idealism, dragging it down to a business level. But um, I think this this couldn't be more true than it is today is that, the, the the golden bridge, we'll call it, for cycling to finally reach a point where it is financially stable and it is, you know, uh, viable and that the resources are there to really do things the way we should be doing them. Um, that bridge is real simple. It's the bridge between professional cycling and recreational cycling. And I think that bridge is kind of broken. And may, maybe this year it actually got a little bit better. Um, but but efforts like the, of Lachlan, that's we are actively trying to engage, you know, the recreational cycling community because, you know, if you can do that, that your fan base, you have the largest, most engaged fan base of any sport in the world. If you could successfully do that, now it's not so easy because just because someone rides a bike doesn't necessarily mean that they're interested in professional cycling. But what we're trying to do is like create sort of a hybrid of that of like, okay, but you like riding your bike and you and you and you kind of like riding your bike fast once in a while too, right? So like, aren't you curious as to what these guys who ride their bikes really, really fast, what they're all about? And can we tell you that story? And can you, you know, become a fan? Yeah. No, I I, I think it I think it's wonderful. Um, and there are I know there are other kind of teams doing little bits. I mean you're clearly the kind of trailblazers in, in that regard and, and long may that continue. Uh, and it's great that you've got sponsors on board that completely embrace that. You know, we talked about, we talked about ideology before, but it is, it's a, for a team to be able to do that for, and facilitate it, actively encourage it amongst the riders. As I say, I think, I think it's wonderful because this, this sport is so, is so diverse and it, there's a kind of sort of celebration in its kind of, tribal nature that there's so many different elements to it the fixie scene mountain biking right. cyclocross you know just just commuting for crying out loud i mean i'm getting into you know riding my brompton and um and that is people are like we're well, on a stupid little folding bike for it. it's like because it's flipping brilliant it means i can go to work in this in london when i have a meeting or whatever yeah yeah i jump on the train i unfold it i don't, I don't need to get cabs anywhere i don't need to walk i just ride and it's like i'm a trainers in my jeans and it's just just because I'm a roadie doesn't mean I can't ride other bikes in other ways. And when I was younger, I guess I was quite selfish. I didn't quite have that. Although I had the spirit of adventure, it's like road bike, road bike, maybe a bit yeah, of mountain yeah. biking. But now at 51, I'm like, just get me on a bike. And yeah. every, anybody who rides a bike, wherever they are in the world, from A to B, whatever it is, the Tour de France, or riding down the shops to buy a pint of milk, it, they're on a bike. And it's like... And as you just said, that's a massive, that's an enormous community, but somehow it, it can it can be stitched together and we can all, you know, without wanting to be each other, we can actually celebrate it as a whole rather than being so disparate and, and, and quite often kind of kind of nasty. And there's this kind of rivalries, right. uh, which I think if, 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 my, if, if I ever leave a legacy, it would be to try and just join join everybody in cycling together again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I totally agree. You know, it's a funny... It's a funny thing, you know, Lachlan, when he, he did the real Giro and 
he he came out of that saying, geez, you know, I, I really want to start focusing a little bit more on these on these more traditional races. And I need to start training for that as opposed to these ultra races. And then interestingly, like a month after that, I had a, a, a dinner with Simon Matram, who's, you know, the founder of Rafa. And everyone thinks yeah. Rafa is is very much in love with, you know, the, the disruptive and sort of, you know, the Lachlan Morton tale of, of exploring and, and EF exploring the world and doing these alternative events. And I was asking Simon, you know, because we, we, we've got a number of new um, sponsors coming on board that are, that are, you know, they're, they're French regions um, in, in the South of France in Provence. And I said, so we're going to be doing all the, the races down in the South of France in, in the early part of the year. And, um, and Simon said, oh, I love those races. I love Etoile de Bessege. It's one of my favorite races of all time. And it just shocked me in that, like, here I am thinking Simon Matram, you know, the guy who wants us doing gravel events and and really, you know, has promoted the Lachlan Morton storytelling, whatever. Here he is telling me that he likes the most traditional of traditional, <laughs> old school of old yeah. school, cold, freezing cold, windy, early season French races you know, that is the exact opposite of, but it just goes to show that, that I think that those, you know, we can blend those worlds together. Like it, 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 it I mean, if Simon can do it somehow in his head and be a massive fan of a toile de Visege and also, you know, a, a big proponent of, of alternative racing and the gravel calendar and all that, if he can manage to do that, then, you know, there's gotta be a way to get some other people. There's gotta be some other ways to get some new fans for a toile de Visege. <laughs> definitely, mate. Definitely. Well, Jonathan, it has been uh, an absolute pleasure. I mean, it's been wonderfully tangential, including my freestyle riffing over my glass of water when you left earlier on. But uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff. Um, but we are going to have to kind of – we're one minute, one hour and 12 in, which is great. But okay. we're going to have to slowly wrap things up. And there's yep. one final element to uh, the podcast, and it's a thing called Guess That Snack. I've talked about it briefly, um, yeah. but what, what it is, we'll, we'll, I'll just play the jingle first. So, uh, Ewan, if you can just tee up the Guess That Snack jingle. Once we've heard that, um, I'll explain the rules. Guess that snack, guess that snack, oh yeah, guess that snack. <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, the dulcet tones of Cecile Utrop Ludwig there, an earlier guest who we we cajoled and uh, roped into doing us a jingle. <laughs> Did she sing that? She sung that. Yeah, That's it's a lovely voice. Yeah, uh, we we did guess that she was my voice. Please, please give her my compliments. I will do. I will do. Uh, yeah, she's she's uh, she's wonderful. But basically, yeah, the um, the the premise of this is basically me crunching on a on a well known snack. Mm. Um, and then you guessing what it is by the, by the acoustics, by the sound, by the sonic nature of the noise that passes its way through the microphone. So, uh, but what I do first, Jonathan, I tell you what the snacks are. Yeah. Okay. So you're familiar, okay, you get get them in your head, and then I'll randomly crunch each one, and you just have have your best shot at guessing. And I've tried to Americanize um, the the snacks. We had Sep Kuss on a few weeks back. I really Americanized the snacks when Sep was on, and he got every single one wrong. So yeah. Not not good. So we have Pringles. Okay. Okay. You're familiar with Pringles. Yes. Once you pop, you can't stop. And I'm actually opening a brand new box of Pringles, um, which I bought out of my own money, um, especially for this show. So there we go. But they're only a pound. They're a slightly shorter tube <laughs> than normal. So Pringles original. Okay. Yeah. The then we've got toffee popcorn. 
okay? So right. normal popcorn, but like coated in like a, a toffee coating. Yeah. Then we have one of my favorite snacks, Doritos flame grilled steak flavor. I knew Doritos would be in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then, again, these aren't really American, but they're just, they're, they are Thai sweet chili potato chips. So just a regular potato chip. Okay. Oh, God. Um, I'm supposed to, I have to identify the difference between Pringles and a regular potato chip. Hmm, interesting. You, I think you, there's a definite, I mean, uh, we've had oh, people no, do it. There's a difference. There's a difference. It, but it's it's subtle. But, um, okay, we'll, we'll kick things off. Um, so I'm getting the first one in my mouth. So, so listen closely. Um, what snack, Jonathan, is this? Is it a popcorn? Is it a flame grilled stoke Dorito, a Pringle, or a regular potato chip? In it goes. Well, you know, when, when you blind taste wine, meaning you're trying to identify... <laughs> you know, a, what a glass of wine is without seeing the bottle, you know, you, you, you do it by process of elimination. So what it's not. Yeah. Um, so to me, that is not the Pringle and it is not the regular potato chip. So yeah, I'll, get, I'll, do, I'll do another one. You, you, do you know what? You, you're in the right, heading in the right direction. Let's do one more for you. Okay. Yeah. So I don't think it's the Dorito either. I, I think it's the popcorn. Correct, Mundo. There you go. I mean, that was thing is you didn't rush. You took your time. Process that was quite forensic, and that's what you you need to be forensic. So well done. One out of one. Okay. Next up is this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to say not the regular potato chip because it was a little too loud. So it's either the Dorito or the Pringle. I'm going to go with the Dorito. Oh, no. no. It was the Pringle. It was the Pringle, mate. Oh, oh, oh mate. Oh, God. Well, good effort. But you, I think I'll give you half a point because you were nearly there. Right. I'm, a, I'm feeling really generous. It's, it's 2020. I'm feeling generous. 2021. 2021. Sorry, I've done that a couple of times, actually. I've done a couple of Instagram posts and put 2020 on. Yeah, thank you, Ewan. I was wrong. Um, okay, next up we have this. I'm just trying to get a... You know when, when you get a bag of chips and some of them are broken? I want to get a complete one mm. for you yeah. to get the proper yeah. proper acoustics. Oh. So here we go. Basically, it's down to two. Is this a potato chip or a, or a Dorito, yeah. JV? Here we go. Mm. Dorito, Dorito. Correct, mate. That was a Dorito. <laughs> oh, which leads us to finally, this is a potato chip. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go, mate. It has that like almost higher pitch because it's so much thinner than the, you know, it's the, it's not as, not as boisterous and it's crunching. It's sort of a higher, it's more chirpy. Yeah. That's a, a, what a wonderful Wonderfully eloquent description of how uh, the noise that a potato chip makes. Wonderful stuff. I like that. That, uh, that was, mate, brilliant stuff. So I think you got three points there, which isn't bad at all. Mm, thank you. Um, and that just leaves us to kind of wind things up. Um, Jonathan, thank you very much. I know we've been messaging for, for several months, actually. And finally, we, we, I pinned you down. And, it, it's, and I'm glad I did because it was we had a lot of fun, talked about a lot of different stuff. Um, and it was just, I just really enjoyed it. So thank you so, so much for your time, mate. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
No worries, mate. You you take care, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll cross paths out on the road uh, in 2021 at some point. I hope so, and let's and let's do it again. Definitely. Cheers, mate. Well, the great Jonathan Vorters, ladies and gentlemen, I feel like there's a very good chance you've learned something from JV today, and I know I certainly have. Looking forward to getting him back on the pod in the future. Thanks as ever to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod, and want to recommend it to your cycling buddies, or to Wayne Denton, who happens to be a John Denver tribute act, if you happen to meet him once lockdown restrictions are relaxed, of course. And finally, a huge thanks to JV for having the courtesy for being early for the very first time for our podcast, and then being so generous with his time. Thanks all, goodbye, stay safe. Stay safe.